Welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast. My name is Alan Russell and I'm joined by Andrew Jenkin for the first of these podcasts. We're both involved with Supporters Direct Scotland. Andrew's our head of uh, the organisation and I'm a council member having joined earlier this year. In this series of podcasts, we're going to talk to people who have either written about uh, supporter ownership uh, or are involved uh, and find out their stories from around uh, the country, around the rest of the UK, around Europe. We're going to start the, the series with an interview with uh, author of punk football, Jim Keoghan. He's written a number of books. This is, this is the first one he's written following uh, writing about the movements at FC Wimbledon uh, and numerous others. Um, a fascinating interview. I think you'll agree, Alan. Yeah. And uh, one that we really thoroughly enjoyed uh, undertaking. And um, yeah, enjoy. So uh, we've been joined by Jim Keoghan, uh, author of Punk Football. Thank you very much for joining us, Jim. Um, wondered if you could just perhaps start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I've, I'm a freelance writer uh, and I've been writing for about 15 years um, and I kind of gradually got into football writing. And um, a few years ago, I wrote something on Wimbledon and uh, the fan ownership model there and, and support activism in general. And uh, the more I uh, sort of delved into it, I realised that this is kind of a, a quite an impressive movement that's taking place in this country. Um, and began writing my first book, uh, Punk Football. And since then, I've written a few more books, uh, mainly on Everton, because I'm an Evertonian. And my latest book, uh, Everton, The Greatest Games, uh, came out a few months ago. Okay. Good, good. Presumably they're available from, from all good bookshops. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and Amazon things like that. Yeah, good. Just in case there's any Evertonians listening. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why did you start with start with punk football, Jim? Uh, why didn't you start with with an Everton book? I think it was just the, um, it was the story that kind of caught my attention. Really, um, you know, I think um, a lot's been written, uh, certainly in this country, about uh, the Premier League and, and everything that's happened since 1992, and yet. In the same year, the first supporters' trust took over a, a club um, in, in England, in, in uh, Hampton Town. And since then, the, the movement's blossomed, and, and yet very little is written about it. Sitting in the media, if you go through the back pages of uh, most newspapers, it's mainly the Premier League that, that's covered, and it's transfer gossip, and it's, it's mainly the, the, the big six. And yet this, this revolution in our game has barely gets a mention. And so I think that really kind of piqued my interest quite a bit. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to learn more. And I've, I found the book a, a great way to do that, really. I, th- I think that, that thing you, you mentioned there about, you know, back pages, don't, you don't seem to get this on the back pages too much. I think that's the, maybe the cult of personality. And billionaires have a personality. Oligarchs have a personality. Um, groups of people, groups of ordinary fans. Uh, it's it's yeah. harder to pin that down and harder to... You know, to put a photo of it on a, on a back page and to write a snappy headline about it. Yeah, that's right, yeah, definitely. In the book, you talk about the kind of evolution of supporters groups and, and as you say, the, the book's called Punk Football. Most fans will be familiar with uh, a supporters organisation of some sort, but perhaps you can explain a little bit about what makes a supporters trust different and um, what, what inspired you specifically to write about this kind of change in supporter organisations. Well, I think um, to begin with, um, I think supporter activism uh, um, was kind of rooted in the idea of 
general generally about kind of the single issue causes. So you've got the, you've got things like uh, Man United fans fighting against um, the attempts of uh, Medoc takeover, and there wasn't this idea really that fans could be owners. That's that that's the main shift. I think for most of football's history, I think fans because they felt connected to their clubs and it, it didn't cost much money to get in and teams felt local. Fans were quite, were quite content to be seen as customers. When that began to change in the nineties, you get campaigns against um, you know um, takeovers and the way clubs are run. Then you get this this change uh, where fans begin to think, well, not only can we campaign together, but also why can't we take control? Why can't we have a, a voice on the board? Why can't we have ownership? And it's, it's that change that I find really interesting because it's a it's a huge shift in how uh, football fans in this country see themselves, and it's uh, it, it's it's been a, a, a revolution really. And yeah, as I said before, not one that's well documented. Mm. And you you mentioned there about the Northampton Town Supporters Trust. You, yeah. you just perhaps expand upon the situation and the circumstances as to as to how that that came about, and and what kind of separates. Um, them as a supporters trust as opposed to perhaps you know what might have been a, a supporters uh, club at the at the time well i think i mean it, it's often the case with when fans uh, take control there's desperation certainly that was the case with uh, northampton they were uh, as so many clubs have been since they were in debt and um, they were facing the prospect of being wound up and it was just a, it was just that sheer desperation of what can we do to save this club that someone stuck on the idea that why don't we why, why don't we get together and and raise money together? But rather than in the, I mean, that's happened before with fans and fans have put their hands in the pocket to build to kind of build stands and to help clubs out. But I think on this occasion they felt why shouldn't we get something back for our money? And so they got together as fans had before, but this time demanded um, some control on the board. And also I think there was a, a feeling that they didn't want to hand this money over and this to happen again. So it wasn't just a case of we want something in return. We also want to be custodians so we can kind of um, look after this money in the long term. And they proved able to do that. I think they set the example of what was to come. But I think that is quite common in football that fans tend to only take control when there are no other options left on the table. What do you think was behind the fact that it hadn't happened before before Northampton Town? I mean, why why were they why were they the first? Why did it happen at that point? Was there something behind that 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 caused that to be the right time and the right place for for this to happen? It's hard to tell. I think you get uh, a, when I was writing about activism in general, there's a, a slight shift in the eighties. I think for the first time, maybe with the, you see with the fancy movement, mm-hmm. uh, anti-racism movements, you get. Uh, Football fans become a slightly more political. I think yeah. it, it sprang from that. I think it, it was a very slow process, and it wasn't you know no one could foresee where it would go. But you get this kind of ground shift, a change of, of perspective, and fans become um, start to see themselves differently. At the same time, I think football at all levels start to change, and I think uh, debt becomes more common, and the prospect of clubs going under becomes more common. So you get these two factors. Uh, operating together, fans becoming more political and thinking differently, and clubs becoming. I mean, the idea of a club going out of business that's become more realistic. I mean, for most of football's history, that clearly happened, and yet yeah. between 1992 and maybe say today, so many clubs have been threatened with being wound up that these two forces uh, are, are happening. 
and that, that's what creates the idea that fans can take control. And I guess that sort of rise in sort of political awareness or activism, you know, yeah. that, that re- gives a really neat tie into the title of the book, Punk Football. Um, yeah. When when I first saw the saw the book on the on the on the shelves, you know, your bright pink cover, punk football pictures yeah. of safety pins, I thought, I'm not sh- I'm not sure when the last time I, I saw somebody with a Mohican at a football ground was, yeah. but I, I think it's more that that sense of 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 taking 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 responsibility for the world that you're in and and actually not meekly accepting you know the way things are is against that's for me that that sort of sense of punk is that how you see it. Yeah, it's, it's that and the sense of kind of it's the it's the punk it's the kind of the idea of punk of doing things yourself. I mean, when when punk first kicked off, uh, you, you get record labels which would be set up out of the blue. There was the, the, there was this sense that you didn't have to kind of uh, know what you were doing. You just did it. I think if this is this. I mean, with football, there's always a feeling for, for decades that you had to be some sort of a businessman and, and be sophisticated and know how to work money. And these are the people who ran our clubs. I mm. think with Support ownership, you get the sense that why can't we just do it ourselves? It's that, it's that DIY mentality that, you know, it's, it, there's nothing stopping us from just taking control. And when you look at what's happened since 1992 and you look at the success stories, you see clubs who, you see groups of fans who've done what maybe a generation earlier would have seen unimaginable and they just got mm-hmm. together and actually run the club for themselves and for the, and for the rest of the fans. And that's, it's that kind of, it's that aesthetic, I think, that, that it shares with the, with the punk movement. You, you talk um, about the, the impact there of Northampton Town and the Supporters Trust. And in, earlier in the book, you're talking more about how, you know, supporters clubs are often maybe just extensions of fundraising arms for the club, basically. Yeah. And yeah. what obviously then you have the Supporters Trust that put something into the club and, and they want something back for it. They want to know that they can protect the money that they've invested into the club and whether that yeah. be through um, some of the shareholding or whether that's about having a place on the board. But, you know, what's the impact of, of, of Brian Lomax who set up the trust there? Do you think within UK football, um, how, you know, what have, what have the, the, the major things been for you that have come from that? Well, I think, um, I think I kind of... One level, there are several clubs that wouldn't now exist if 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 Brian hadn't hadn't kind of stumbled upon this idea. I think there was certainly um, if you look at when um, uh, there the, the, was a huge financial crisis in lower league football after the collapse of I think it was One Digital. ITV um, Digital was it? One mm. Digital. Mm. Um, and there were several clubs there who were, who were utterly dependent upon what their trust did. I think. There's also, uh, uh, I think fans now see themselves differently. I think that's something that first come out of this movement. I think there's a sense that clubs can, could, well, should be held account um, to account and can be held to account. So I think you've got these twin things where there's a practical element where, you know, fans have definitely intervened to save to save clubs. And, and there's also a sense that fans can be custodians of the game that we can protect football from what some owners uh, can do. You also referenced the um, the early days of Supporters Direct, really, and yeah. how they um, needed to adjust the business model at the time because they really underestimated the number of well, the amount of interest that that fans had in setting yeah. up supporters trusts across the country. I mean, is that um, how how key was that really in terms of changing fans' attitudes? What was football like at the time? You talked a lot about the finance issues there, but um, what what were some of the other issues that were leading fans to to want to set up trusts? I think I, I mean I think football changed. I think it changed beyond recognition. I mean a lot a lot of 
uh, analysis, but not a lot of what you've written about kind of the Premier League and, and uh, since that point, and, and other leagues too. We talk about what happens on the pitch. But actually, the football experience changed beyond recognition, but uh, from some, from '92 onwards, and not just in the Premier League. And suddenly, fans, I think, began to feel disenfranchised. Uh, well, you know, it's not just a case that you can't afford to go to the game anymore. You can often, even if you have them on, you can't get a ticket. Mm. It becomes more corporate. You get this this sense of disconnect between uh, the uh, the club and the fans. You get owners who previously would have been local businessmen. Suddenly, you get uh, international businessmen, um, and you get the sense that the club no longer value at all. And I think this fed into the support to trust movement. I think fans uh, felt there was an avenue for them to to, to have a say. And I think. Support direct. You're right. They didn't. They didn't really appreciate maybe just how much anger there was out there and how much demand there was amongst fans to, you know, to try and get a, a grip on what was happening within football. Because I think for a long time we, we just assumed the game would, would carry on as before, and suddenly you get this completely different experience where you can't just rock up on a Saturday afternoon and go to the game. You can't get a ticket, and you can't afford a ticket, and you've gone to just a few games per season. And um, you feel that the club no longer values you as a fan, and you're just a customer to them. And I think that you know it was that feeling that that, that enabled the, the trust movement to blossom. I think. Mm. That's the sounds sense to me from what you've been saying the last couple of minutes. There's a, a two broad categories that it can fall into when supporters trust, trust become involved and, and start to get some traction. So one, there's there's a crisis. You know the club's going to yeah. die unless unless they do something, and the other one is just that sense of unease that 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 conflict with the idea of things continuing as they are. It's it's just that that dissatisfaction with the way things have, have been moving. Um, yeah, and and it, and I wonder what's what's an easier rallying call for supporters to get involved. You know the crisis. You know so if we don't do something right now, the club the club's going to club's going to fail. Um, my experience and my observations of looking around at clubs that have been in that is that the crisis eventually goes away and it's difficult to keep people engaged. Whereas that yeah. sense of dissatisfaction with the way things are, that's maybe a slower burn, um, but but lasts a lot longer and, and can keep people aligned. Do you do you see one, one's easier to, easier to, to be a successful model than the other? Yeah, I think um, I, I talked to a few clubs who'd gone through this process and who had, who had managed to sustain uh, support ownership over the longer term. So Exeter City had that that um, that there was a there was a crisis and they had no problem at all getting members and getting and raising finance. But once the crisis eased, they found it really hard to kind of get people engaged. And worse for them is that they got relegated. Yeah. So you know, there's always that that that, that issue of fans that you know, you go to watch football to see your team win. And that's why, you know, that's really why you go in the first place. But you also want that connection to the club. I think there are some clubs like Wimbledon who have found that they, they, their concern is that at some point in the future, even though they've had good retention rates and, and, and their trust is very effective, they worry that when the memory of the crisis fades uh-huh. uh, and you get the, a new generation of fans who are still, you know, still engaged in the model, but if you're stagnating on the pitch, uh, someone comes along and says, well, I'm going to offer you some money. Kind of, kind of trust models they survive that. It's you, you, you're always kind of, yeah. The crisis helps you initially, gets people involved, and then after that, you're always fighting these kind of this kind of uh, the, the desire to feel a connection to the club, but also for the club to do what football fans want, what the club 
do, which is to win and to and to have upward progression, which is the whole point, I suppose, of of going the game. Hmm. And I, I guess that that desire for upward progression is is always going to trump doing the responsible, sensible, long term thing. I mean, we all we all yeah. see a bad performance in front of our eyes on a Saturday afternoon or a Friday night, or a Tuesday night, or whenever football's being played in different leagues. Um, yeah. We all see that, and that, that drives that drives owners as football fans to to make make choices, make decisions that they, they might not do otherwise. Um, do you think that... Uh, how, how do you think football could be uh, given a more even playing field so that that pressure didn't cause clubs back into crisis again? Well, I think, you, I think you know... People often look at the German model as a way of, uh, of of how football should be run. They they see of their you know great levels of fan, of fan engagement. You have uh, a different ownership model. Um, you have you know, low ticket prices and and a sense that football is being run competently. But that takes uh, that takes the football authorities and maybe even the government to intervene. If you could, I mean, you know. There's nothing stopping a government coming in and trying to, to establish a fan on every board or giving trusts the option of buying, say, 10% of a club. That could be done. And I think the problem at the moment with the model in, in, in this country is that it's, it's, it's very capitalist. It's, mm-hmm. it's a free-for-all. And you, you get the sense that the football authorities are loath to intervene too much because, take something about the Premier League, it's a massively successful brand. I mean, for the, for the Premier League, they sell abroad. They get the, the 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 income. It's hugely popular. So why would they want to tinker with that? You yeah. know, so as far as they're concerned, if there's a few disgruntled fans out there, then it doesn't really matter because they can get new fans in South Korea and China <laughs> and whatever else. And I think that's the main problem at the moment. You might have fans feeling disconnected and, and a generation of fans now who can't afford to go. Actually, the football authorities don't care because it's football working for them. I think that's that's what I see. Them the, the greatest possibility of change would, would come from the authorities themselves. They they have the power to change our game, but I don't think they want to. Mm. Yeah. Do you think there's any chance of you know the the fifty plus one rule you know, that Germany and Sweden have ever coming in in the UK? No, not so. I think I mean for them it's cultural. That's how football mm. yeah. started yeah. In, in those countries. That's just how they. You know that, that's how they began, and it, and, it, and it stayed. I think to bring to bring that into this country would be an absolute revolution, and mm. I, there'd be so much resistance, I think, from owners and from uh, the, the the Premier League, and maybe maybe even the football parties themselves. I think the best we can hope for is you've seen a few political parties in their manifestos talk about tinkering with football, and you know maybe bringing in you know like a fan of balls, and maybe uh, you know, if there's a if a club comes up for sale, they've just maybe fans are given the first option to buy a stake. I don't think we'll see wholesale change because it's culturally very, very difficult. And also practically, you know, it's it's hard to see where the, uh, the, the impetus will come from. Mm. You, you, talk, you talk in the book, um, the fact that German and, and Swedish clubs are a lot closer to their supporters. And, and that, that is largely down to the kind of amateur nature of clubs in Germany until maybe the 40s or 50s was it um, yeah how could you perhaps just explain how clubs in, in Germany are structured and, and Sweden in fact you know these multi-club um, systems where anyone can become a member yeah well I think um, in, in Germany for example it's not, it's not every club but the majority of clubs are 
first and foremost, they're sports clubs, so they'll they're so, they'll house like a football element, maybe basketball, hockey, different sports. And the change in in, in Germany's it, it was that you could spin off part of that into a business. So you have, say, Bayern Munich um, uh, as a sports club, and within that you have the, the Bayern Munich football business. But the sports club would retain fifty plus one ownership of that business. Mm. So it means that even if an investor came in, say like Adidas, which I think happened with Bayern Munich, they could never have full control of the football club. So there's always a sense that the members have, have a say. I think that's what's helped in a country like Germany retain that sense of connection to the fans and also why ticket prices haven't escalated beyond control and why uh, when you have like supporter surveys in, in, in countries like that, there's always, a, there's always a high level of satisfaction. Whereas in this country, you have high levels of dissatisfaction yeah, because, yeah. again, there's, there's a sense that we're not as connected to the clubs as, as, as they are. In, in terms of measuring success in other ways than just sort of that, 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 that you know, performance on the field, you write about FC United uh, and, the, yeah. and the emphasis they place on their role in the community. Um, yeah. So uh, almost out, outside of football, it's almost irrelevant you know, what's happening on, on the pitch you know, for those yeah. 90, 90 minutes. You know, what's your experiences uh, there? I mean, what, what would you, you, know, you characterise that? They um, classify themselves as a kind of a community club before they've been, been a football club. So actually what they do in the community is, is just as important, if not more important, than what happens on the pitch. I think you find this a lot in um, fan-owned clubs that they tend to be exceptionally progressive. You think, you know, I think only last summer, um, Lewis FC, who are based in Sussex, they became the first club to allocate equal playing budgets to their men's team and their women's team. Which, right. you know, that, that's unprecedented in, in, in English football. And that idea kind of came from membership. And you think... You know, they're also very good in a grassroots level and their community outreach is excellent. So these these clubs, I think, because you get a, pl- a plurality of ideas, I think because perhaps maybe they're thinking less about just what happens to the pitch and because they they are owned by the community generally, I think you, you get the sense that it's of a football club rooted in a community and a football club that starts thinking differently, thinking... What can we do to what can we do to bring in members? What can we do to benefit our members? And it's not just a case of can we get promotion? Can we win a cup? It's what's our role in this in this town, in this city, in this in this village? And what can we do to, to kind of help the lives of people who've invested money in this um, in this club? It's a very again, it's a, culturally it's very different to what most football clubs are like. Even though a lot of clubs have community programs and they do lots of good work. These kind of punk football clubs are pioneers in many ways and, and generally exceptionally progressive. By the same token, you, you, you talk about, and a number of the clubs you write about in the book, uh, about where you have differences of opinions within those supporter organisations. So, so some of them, you know, even, even the most community, the most progressive minded um, member of a, of a supporters trust also wants to see their, their team get promoted and win cups. Uh, yeah. And in a, in a couple of instances in the book, you talked about how those, you know, that difficulty in juggling those priorities has actually led to difficulties at some of the clubs. I'm thinking of when you when you wrote about Notts County, um, yeah. and I think it was maybe Brentford you talked about as well, where those sort of differences of, of priorities uh, came came in. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's by, by far uh, it's not a perfect system. 
that you know there's still you know I, I wrote about I, I did a chapter on, on the, the failures and the, I, I included about five clubs where uh, supporters had made um, very poor decisions. I mean there, there were some when there were some clubs uh, where it, it was just run poorly because that can happen too. Uh, I think it was uh, in Ask County where they they sold the club uh, and it was a, a massive mistake and. Mm. The problems that they'd come in to solve reappeared almost right away, but even worse. So, kind of as, as custodians, they were a complete disaster. Um, and you're right; often it's that it's that 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 kind of that desire to to have success that undermines the the kind of the, the community model. So, someone waves cash in front of your face, and suddenly. Yeah. Because the crisis has been averted, they think, well, now it's time for us to move on, and then mm. this is how we do it. There's a recent example with uh, uh, Portsmouth, where I mean, of, yes. of, if any if any club could represent what has wrong with football in the last twenty years, it's Portsmouth. I mean, they they went from the Premier League down to the bottom tier. They had multiple owners, one of one of whom was was possibly fictitious, and they <laughs> they took on tons of debt, and they were you know facing winding up orders several times, the fans step in and you get the supporters trust and some local people who came in to kind of rescue the club. And within a couple of seasons, and then they gained promotion. And for a lot of people who, who like punk football, they were seeing that as the great hope of the future. They had a huge fan base, a big membership, and the potential to kind of reach the championship and be the kind of the highest placed community-owned club. And then yet they voted to, to sell recently. Mm-hmm. And so... Now, if, you, if you think of it, if a club like that had been through so much turmoil and so, you know, so many things have gone wrong because of dodgy owners and chunky deals and this and that, and even they very quickly have, have kind of bought into a, a, to a new owner and the promise of advancement up the, the, the divisions back to where they think they belong. So it's, yeah. you know, it's it, that, that, that need to see a football team win it's very powerful. Mm. Often it can it can it can override any sense of desire to have a, a stake in your club as well. Mm. But at the same token, though, um, actually stepping back from being in charge of the football club, there could, there's there's different ways of doing that. Some of them, I, I think, not the Notts County example. I, I I can't imagine they have the, the individuals or that organisation has much credibility left after making that. Making that that decision to to sell up to not to to Monto Finance, um, yeah. whereas um, you know Brentford seemed to have stepped back quite gracefully, um, welcomed a new owner and had a bit of a, a sort of a, a dovetailing with with their new owner, uh, and there and I can see there's possibly more of a role for them going forward. Do, do you see generally you know when tr- when trusts have either sold out or things have gone wrong, uh, or it's not worked and for for some other reason. Um, do they still have a, a, a role afterwards? I mean, what can what can they bring to the table after having been in charge of running the club and then no longer being in that seat? Well, I think you're right. I think I think it, a lot of it depends upon what happens next. I think you know, like with someone like Brentford, I think they were fortunate that the person who took over was he was local and he was, he was a fan. He was, he was like an, like an old fashioned owner. He, he, he seemed to genuinely have a desire to make this club work. Uh, so the the trust there. Came out of that looking um, in, in good shape. Whereas someone like uh, Notts County, I'm not entirely sure the trust is even still active because what was, what happened was so disastrous. Yeah. That um, you know when you're asking people um, to 
you know, come and join us and pay your subs and we'll do this. It's hard for fans to, to, to get to get on board with that because they, all they point to is the, is the disaster you've caused. So it's, yeah, it's you can step back and, and, and trust you do it, but it has to be done well. I mean, I think the ideal way to do it would be to retain a stake. That's mm-hmm. that's the that's the best way to do it to say okay if they're gonna if they're gonna sell up then at least we want you know a seat on the board or we'll keep ten percent just so we've got that element of influence at a club. Um, but you know when owners come in they often want total control, so it's it's it's, it's, it's difficult. You, one of the one of the big things that um, I often find myself having the conversation with uh, sometimes club directors or owners themselves is uh, the criticism of you know what the fans know um that kind of and the, and the other one of course is well i'm a fan so you, you you get that as well from from a lot of yeah. club club chairman which is a fair enough uh point but obviously what we're talking about here is a democratically owned um structure through which you know fans can get elected to the board and have their say but in terms of the criticism of what the fans know it seems to be a bit of a, over the years it seems to have been a bit of a um, misnomer around how you know supporter and clubs are actually run, and, and some people seem to think that you'd have the fans in the dugout picking the team every week. Um, <laughs> what have you ever you know when you put the book out? What kind of criticisms did you have? Did you have any um, kickbacks on it? You know what kind of feedback did you get from people that perhaps uh, are critical of the model? Um, I didn't really, to be honest. I mean, most people who um, who um, who read the book. Uh, I think they're kind of largely supportive of the model, to be honest. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I did interview several chairmen who had been involved with the supporters. I think I talked to uh, uh, Dick Knight at, um, at, uh, at Brighton. And there are lots of chairmen out there who, who are happy to engage. Generally, it tends to be if they are local and they are fans too. I think um, I think the Swansea Supporters Trust have found uh, a shift um, in that previously... When it was local people and the trust owning the club, there's a lot of communication. But since they've sold out, I think the trust feel quite isolated. Mm-hmm. So I think you know it, it depends. It depends a lot on the owner. There are some who who are, you know are quite progressive and see they, they want to keep the fans on board and they see it as being, being important. But equally, there are some people who come in they want to run the club themselves and they don't. They probably see the supporters trust as a, just a nuisance. Mm. And. Um... Talking about Premier League trusts, there obviously the the opportunity for them to to gain some sort of meaningful ownership beyond Swansea is is quite slim in this day and age. Yeah, uh, Premier League and Football League have got new rules this year about structured dialogue in terms of what clubs need to do. Um, is that where you see the role for most mostly for supporters trusts? Uh, you know, creating that that line of dialogue and communication with the club. Yeah, I think. Well, I think when when this kind of moving first kind of blossomed, I think there was a, some optimism at all levels of football that yeah, we can all get together and we can, you know, pool our resources and and um, and take control. But I think realistically, in the Premier League, that's never going to happen. Probably not, possibly not even the Championship. You know, the only thing the money involved in football now is so vast that it's just beyond the means of of supporter groups. So I think that I think there has to be a. I think it's it, it's it's happening. But I think it has to be kind of a, a, a shift in perspective of what a trust is capable of and what a trust can do. I think that has to be sold to the fans too. You have to say that, you know, although the word supported trust is often associated with ownership, in the case of somewhere like Liverpool or Everton or Man United, that's not going to happen. And so what we're talking about is engagements, is, you know, if uh, ticket prices are too high or if there's 
not enough allocation for certain fans, then we will campaign on these issues. But, you know, realistically, this is all we can do. This is the, you know, the best we can manage. Mm-hmm. In the couple of decades that, you know, the Supporters Trust movement um, has, has been has been running, yeah, there's an awful lot of diverse experience there at different clubs, at different levels in the game. Um, when you look across all of that, what advice would you give to somebody, as, either at a supporters' trust that's already established uh, or somebody at a club that doesn't have any representation like that um, but you know, wants to achieve something? You know, how would you, how would you, um, what advice would you give to people to, to, get, to get involved or to, to make a difference at their club? It's like I was talking in the week to the Everton supporters trust who are facing this problem now that they're kind of having to relaunch and rebrand because um, they've, they've had no issues to complain upon. So it's kind of, it's really been really difficult to kind of attract members. But I think they, they were saying that, you know, one, you have to have a trust. You can't, you cannot just trust in owners to, to, to do the best for your club. And I think that's the message you have to get over to fans. You have to say that, you know, things might be good now, but you look you look at football, you look at the history, the recent history of football, you know, things can go wrong very quickly. Clubs change very quickly. Mm-hmm. You have stadium moves, you have this uh, ticket price changes. You need to be organised. And I think you have to... Um, so that'd be the first thing. And I think you have to... Uh, my advice to kind of any source would be to to be constant, be constantly out there trying to recruit. Because it's, it, it, without the membership, you've got nothing... You, you can't go and talk to a, a club at board if you've got like 50 members from a fan base of tens of thousands. You need to have that weight of support behind you to be taken seriously. I think those two things, you've got to have a trust and you need to be, your your, your presence on social media or outside the brand has to be constant as well. So it's those, is that weight of members that gives you the credibility that you need in yeah, order to, I mean, to influence? I think you're nothing without members. I think, I mean, there are, there are I mean, the Evans Trust is, is, is struggling right now with membership and, and it's, hard, it's hard to organise things. And so they're going to rebrand themselves and, and go out there and try and just hammer this point home that, you know, things might be good now at the club. But, you know, something like Everton, you've got a ground move uh, on the horizon, back and forth issues, the club is changing. To where it has been over the previous thirty years, that's going to create issues. We need to be organised now so that when these issues arise potentially, then we've got the force of numbers to hold the club to account and say, you, you know, you can't just do what you want. The fans are organised. Yeah, you're ready. You're already, you know, running through the start line rather than uh, rather than getting yeah. off the blocks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think perhaps just just finally, Jim talk about two factors for the future of, of punk football um, creation of a more level playing field and the creation of a, a better environment really for fan control to flourish you say that you don't think the 50 plus one rule is is likely to come to uh, England anytime soon but um, you know how optimistic are you for the for the future in terms of not necessarily just ownership but you know fan activism well, I think the fans themselves are encouraging because it, it's a, it, it is you know it's it's quite a big movement. And you see when we when we when fans act together like the twenty twenty campaign, you can see what's possible. I think that I'm, I'm confident that fans will always remain active and are certainly an element within them. Will in terms of change from above, I've got no confidence at all that you get anything from the FA or the Premier League. I don't, I don't think there's any interest there. If you get a more progressive government, if, if, if say, Labour were to get in, then, yeah, you, I could see, you know, if, a definite change. I mean, there the certainly seems to be an appetite, uh, both uh, with the Labour Party and the Liberals, 
to change football and to maybe take maybe make it less table capitalist and, and try and you know take the edge off it slightly. So in that sense, there's, I, 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 I'm optimistic that that things will get better. I, I think the game as it exists now uh, will be different in, in 10 years' time if we get a different government because the, the appetite for change is there among supporters. You just need guidance from above. And I think for a long time, we've looked to UEFA, we've looked to the FA, we've looked to the Premier League, and that's the wrong place to look because there's zero interest in, in the fan experience. I think you have to look to political parties to come in and try and make a fundamental difference. Mm-hmm. OK, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Great thanks. talking to you. Great, thanks. All much the best. All right, thanks. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Uh, I think it was a great chat, chat with Jim. Uh, what was I found really interesting there is the, the stories don't just come from the successful um, experiences of fan ownership, but also the ones that have been a little bit rockier. And I think there's a lot to learn there from that 20, 25 years uh, that the trust movement has been, been up and running. What did you think, Andrew? I think you're absolutely right. It was important that we do point out that fan ownership isn't a panacea as much as we are supportive of, you know, further fan involvement in the ownership and, and governance of football that there are incidences where it can go uh can go wrong so no but otherwise i mean the examples that he's in the research he's taken in that book is is quite fascinating really starting from the first supporters trust and and how it's evolved um and and certainly a lot for for us to learn in scotland in terms of where where it has gone wrong in the past especially as we don't have those same challenges that they do in England in terms of um, you know a championship or a premiership team being community owned whereas we've already got a premiership uh, club in Motherwell that are community owned we're going to have another in Hearts in the next couple of years so you know there's challenges for those clubs to learn from the likes of Portsmouth that have been in that position and and some of the more successful ones as well. Yeah Jim Books really is uh, it's invaluable really uh, for either clubs who are embarking on that journey or ones who are, who are full throttle in the, in the process of that fan ownership uh, model. Um, it's available from Amazon. Uh, it's a great read. It's really entertaining. It's got really diverse stories from around the UK. And we really mainly talked about that uh, today, but also touched on the models in, in Germany and Sweden. Um, but it can give that that insight and that learning that people have Otherwise, we'd only get through hard experience. You can get it just by reading a book mm-hmm. and take that take that into in, into into your model into into your club. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be doing a, a series of other podcasts like this. So, if you do enjoy it, please give it a like or share or I'm not really sure what you do with podcasts but uh, get involved if you can as well. Feel free to to interact with us on on social media. We're at sup direct scott. S U P P direct Scott, um, and I think we'd encourage any engagement really. Yeah, and most importantly, keep listening. Absolutely, all the best. Thank you. Bye.